you know, through meditating, through painting. I got the the word that in order to get to the next level, I'm really just going to have to let go of everything that I think is supposed to happen or the way that I think that it's supposed to happen. Like, it's like, you no longer control this narrative. Like, God controls this narrative. Just like, let it go. Have your hands open and see how everything just, just kind of unfolds. From somewhere around the world, welcome to the Black Women Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Wanda Duncan, and I'm so glad you're joining me as we explore the paths of Black women who've made travel a large part of their lives. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you please tell us your name, where you're from, your current location, and the name of your business? My name is Chris Keys, and I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. I uh, am based in Memphis now, and my the name of my business is by Chris Keys, which is a travel wear brand that provides illustrations and travel wear garments for women around the world. So I want to talk about Miss Bernice. <laughs> Tell me about Grandma Bernice. Yeah, so um, yeah, so Grandma Bernice is where my love for traveling started. So she basically, um, her and a group of her friends, when they were like in their 20s, they started a social group. Um, and they started just to like do community service within Memphis. And they would just like get together and have dinners. And then once they had children, their children kind of got involved and, you know, with doing community service. And then one thing that they would do is they would always pack up a charter bus and hit it somewhere. Like sometimes they would go down to um, the casino was a huge part. So they would go to the casino um, in Mississippi, which is like an hour away from us. They would go to New Orleans. Um, and then they would like take the charter bus all the way up to New York from Tennessee. <laughs> and so once they had grandchildren, they started to make these annual summer trips. Um, and that's where my love for travel really started. Like was through my grandma and her friends. Um, they were very like feisty, um, <laughs> independent, you know, go getting women. They would like sell uh, plates throughout the year, fish plates, spaghetti plates, chicken fried chicken plates, so they could raise money to take us on vacation. So we went uh, like to Niagara Falls, and I mean, and this was all on the charter bus. Like it was like sometimes like a day trip driving, but um, and then we went to a lot of theme parks. So she fusses at me now about traveling so much, but I'm like, I got it from you. So yeah. She doesn't travel um, that much now. She's she's 87, but for sure, my love for travel came from my grandma. Uh, some nerve. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to push the domino over and then be mad about the effect, grandma? Right. She's like, we didn't go that far. We didn't go. You know, you're going like, to Asia <laughs> and all these different places. I'm like, it, the travel bug is the travel bug. So <laughs> that's really cool to see like how 
all of that was organized to experience that kind of community, that kind of sisterhood through generations, even like over such a span of time. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I love that. So how did it, how did it affect Miss Gwen, Mama Gwen? Um, so my, you know what my mom did? Well, she traveled um, some, but definitely not as much as I think my grandma and her friends. Um, so my, my mom was a nurse and so she, her schedule was busy a lot of the time. So like during the summer times, sometimes she would travel with us, but a lot of times she would just pack our bags <laughs> You're going on vacation with your grandma, you know, so this is what you're going to do. Um, now, my great-grandmother, I was fortunate to have my great-grandmother still living for uh, 30 years of my life. So almost 30 years. So my mom would sometimes like stay behind and watch my grandma, my great-grandmother, like when she got off of work, you know, just go to go and see about her. So it's like the grandmother and the grandkids were off on the road. <laughs> and my mom would stay and watch the great-grandma. I had two great-grandmoms, uh, maternal and paternal. So, um, but my mom, she went on her first international trip um, two, three years ago when I graduated from London College of Fashion. And it was just like amazing to see like my my parents almost like be children again. You know, it's like they gave us this exposure to the world and now we're able to give it to them. So that was really cool. So your mom actually gave you something that not a lot of moms are, I don't want to say like able to successfully give, but it's like, from her being a nurse, you inherited from both sides of your family a blood disorder right. that they had just lived through. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the gift of a diagnosis that you were able to get. Right. So, right. And, and that was only because like she advocated for you hard, hard in ways maybe she couldn't advocate for herself even. Right. And yeah, like, I think to the audience, to the listeners who listen to the show, like is pretty well known how black women are treated in the medical uh, industry. And cause it is an industry, unfortunately, but yeah, how our pain and our irregularities are often overlooked right. and how often we go undiagnosed, right. misdiagnosed. Yeah. Um, um, and just right. like all around aren't treated well. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting. Um, of course, I, I haven't had a chance to like reflect on how, you know, my mom advocating for me really changed my life until I started this collection um, that I started about three years ago called hematology, which is, the study of the physiology of the blood. So this collection um, brings awareness to people who are living with blood disorders and all of the colors and the fabrics built in this ready-to-wear collection are inspired by uh, blood and irregular blood cells. But I didn't realize that, you know, how intricate it was just generationally until I started this collection. And I put up a video of my grandma speaking about her blood disorder 
around Mother's Day, and her one of her good friends called me, and she told me that when my grandmother was probably probably around my age, which is in my early thirties, she went to the doctor. Um, she wasn't feeling well, and she didn't know what you know what it was, but they realized that her blood was low and. Her friend was a nurse, and she said she went into the room, and she was like, oh, hell no, y'all giving her the wrong blood <laughs> blood um, <laughs> type. She was like, you know, she didn't know what she, what kind of blood she needed, but she was like, she had to be, you know, the advocate for her. And she was like, your grandmother could have really, you know, suffered or could have died had she taken that, that blood. And still, you know, she knew she she knew she needed that blood, but she didn't know exactly what the illness was until I was born. And that was like, you know, 40 or 50 years later. So it was, it's just, it's interesting just to see <laughs> it, like you said, um, how for one women and people of color are treated in healthcare um, and just how important it is for us to be educated about, our illnesses, our bodies, you know, if someone's saying, because initially they just wanted to give me like transfusions, just like they did my grandmother, but my mother kept pushing, no, 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 we got to see what this is. Um, so it's important for us to like, you know, just be an advocate for ourselves and continuing to ask questions and continuing to demand research um, if something doesn't sound right, because it really could cost you your life because they were they were pushing a treatment without understanding the diagnosis they didn't have a diagnosis they just wanted to give you the blood transfusions right right and I, I just would have been getting blood transfusions for the rest of my life just pretty much just um treating the symptoms when not getting down to the root cause of like this is a genetic thing so it actually I won't say that it was a gift. I will say that you took whatever circumstances you were born into and you just made the best of it. So that hereditary elliptocytosis, um, (laughs) but you took that and Mm -hmm. as you were seeking treatment, as you were seeking diagnosis, um, through St. Jude, you said that the only thing that would calm you down was art. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's um, If you've ever heard people ex- explain about sickle cell, how your bones just hurt. Um, now, I've been told by sickle cell patients and sickle cell doctors, they're like, your situation is nowhere near as painful as sickle cell. So I, I try not to compare it to that. But yeah, it's just an aching, like it's just an aching and um, and it's just like a fatigue. Like you feel just extremely exhausted. Like my, my dad um, explained it. He was saying that he, when he took me in to get a blood transfusion, he I just couldn't walk. He just had to carry me inside of the hospital. Um, so, yeah, I, I, remember I asked the nurses, like, how long is this going to take? And they're like, it's just something to take a few minutes, you know, just we can just cut on the TV or whatever. And then like a few minutes turned into 30 minutes, 30 minutes to an hour. So they brought me in. Um, and St. Jude was really good for implementing art with children. So they brought me in, you know, watercolors and markers and all these different art 
pieces to keep me to keep me, you know, just to keep me occupied and to keep my mind off of the fact that I was in the hospital. So that's where my, I, I've always been an artist, I would say, since I was born. I think that was just my calling um, to be an artist. So I've always been, you know, interested in art, but really it, I, I realized for the rest of my life that it was something that really calms me down, even to this day. I use it as a, as a way to calm anxiety or anything else. There's a quote from your mom that says, I wasn't going to tell her once I saw her abilities and her confidence. No, you can't do this. Be a lawyer, be a teacher. That's not what the Lord intended. And you were like, I'm going to New York for an internship. And she was like, how? <laughs> but, right. But you, you just had your heart set on it. Like, going to school for art you went to a school there in memphis um no so i went to um a school well first i went to a school that was um about two hours from memphis i went there for undergrads it's called university of tennessee at martin and um that was kind of like the safe option because my sister had gone there it was close to home. My parents weren't really sold on going to a fashion school right out of high school. Um, and it was just really lack of their knowledge and lack of my knowledge. Like, you know, I didn't really, I didn't have anybody to lead me to say, you know, this is what you can do in New York or wherever, London, wherever else. Um, so I went there for four years and then that's when I moved to New York. I was like, okay, I have to get, get my feet wet by going, you know, head first into the industry. And your mom said also that she, it says, I learned something about faith from her because she was so confident that this was going to happen and it did. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because um, I've always, like I said, I've just always known that this was the path that I'm supposed to go down, art and design. Um, if you could just put a stamp on my head that's that's what I'm like composed of um so interestingly enough I was I was pretty scared to go to New York at first I was I knew that I wanted to go but I was kind of scared and um long story short I was going I was at church and this lady sat beside me and she was asking like what's what are your next moves and I did not know this lady but what are your next moves um after you graduate and I, I told her that I really wanted to become a designer. And I told her, I was like, I want to be the best designer, you know, there ever was. And I was, I was like, I want my clothes to be so globally. And, you know, I just went on and on. And so she um, asked, where are you going to go next? And I was like, well, I feel like I need to go to New York. But I said, Atlanta would be safer because I have family in Atlanta. And she was like, no, you need to go. She, you know, she kind of put her foot down, like, you need to go to New York. If you want to learn um, what you need to learn and just be around the best, that's where you need to be. And she was like, I have a sister who lives in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and she has a, a house and she stays by herself. I'm going to ask her, can you stay with her? And just to hear that that was possible just completely changed the trajectory of my life. Um, she asked her sister. Her sister was hesitant at first, um, later from Trinidad. And eventually she 
she was like, okay, I'll let her, I'll let her stay with me. This lady I didn't know, you know, she didn't know me. So I um, ended up getting the internship that next year. And in this internship was in New York and I went to Flatbush and I stayed with this lady named Miss Jean and me and Miss Jean have the tightest bond. Like <laughs> she's, she's probably, Miss Jean is almost 90. Um, but you know, it was, it was more than a, 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 a internship, you know, in fashion. I learned so much more about the West Indian culture, you know, about the foods that she would cook, you know, she was teaching me how to make roti and, you know, like the stores and things that she would take me to. So it was like a travel cultural lesson wrapped in one. And once I did that internship, I was like, okay, I don't know what I was thinking by second guessing. Should I, should I make this move? Um, this is after I finish this internship, I'm going to move here. And so that's what I did. And so I think that's what my mom meant by she has the faith. Cause I, I knew that um, when I, when I, when I first moved, you know, a lot of people were like, who are you going to stay with? And I'm like, I'm staying with this lady named Miss Jean. <laughs> Do you know her? No. You know, so it's just like, what are you crazy? But I just knew that if God led me to, if God led this lady that I didn't know to sit beside me at church at this particular day, she has this sister that lives in a place where I need to go. Um, you know, he's going to take care of everything else. And he did. So I wanted to ask a bit about like your art journey. So you, was your first exposure to art through watercolors or had you like, you know, like kids play with crayons and colored pencils and like, had, had you grown up drawing? Yes. So I actually have an aunt, my mom's sister, um, who, when I was coming up, she was in fashion school. So she would come home and she would drop off her bags and of course go out with her friends. And I would just go through her stuff and find all of her um, things that she was making and her art supplies and just try to like mimic what she drawn. And so every like holiday, she would come home with another project and another project. And I would just keep going through her stuff and trying to imitate what she was drawing. So, and it, it was just so fascinating to me because, you know, she would come home with like a, a pencil sketch and then the next time it'll be filled with color. And then the next time she might have a, a mini mock-up of a garment and that, you know, it was just like <laughs> heaven, you know, like what world is this and how can I get more of it? Um, so that was my first introduction to art. And then my mom and my dad started to just like buy me art supplies. At Fishlap, after I started, I drew on the walls all the time <laughs> when I was little, um, just trying to make like, these like what I didn't even I didn't even know that I was really making a mural drawing flowers and things on my wall so yeah so my aunt is I give her credit for unknowingly introducing me to art I'm curious about the medium of watercolor so there are like so many other ways to create art Mm -hmm. but it seems like watercolor is like your love Yes. What is it about watercolor versus like acrylic versus oil versus gouache versus 
you know, charcoal that draws you? Yeah, watercolor is like, it's so magical. Um, it's the only medium where you have no control. And I like that. So if you, I use a technique called wet to wet technique. So I, I put the water down on the paper first, and then I put the watercolor or the ink into the water. And you might be able to guide the watercolor a little bit, but the water is like the magic of it. So the water is going to take the color um, just wherever it wants to go. And I, I just find it so cool that every time you do a painting, you know, no watercolor painting can be the same. It's impossible. So every time you do a watercolor painting, it's going to look completely different. And um, I taught a, taught a class last year in Koh Samui, Thailand on watercolor meditations. And I just focused on the idea of surrendering. And it really is a surrendering process. Like, you know, when you are starting out as an artist, or even if you are a developed artist, when you get to the canvas or the paper, you know, you have this idea of what you want to create. And, you know, you have these strict lines and, you know, you, you kind of restrict yourself. And then if it doesn't come out, you know, you want to throw the painting away or whatever. But watercolor is something where you have to surrender to the, to the process. Like you have to surrender to the medium. And it's just so, for me, it's just a magical um, way of expressing a, a particular subject or expressing yourself. It's very light and airy, um, and that's, that's also how my garments are. They're just very light, light and fabric, light and airy. And so, yeah, I really like that. And it's almost like you have some clairvoyance to you. So Kosamui was um, last year, 2019, in the last year. And then at the beginning right. of the year, you talked about this word surrender. You said, which is like January, mm-hmm. you were like, surrender, that's the word. Y'all going to get sick of hearing me say that word because like that's what this year is going to be about mm-hmm. and baby <laughs> if this is not the year to surrender listen. honey I don't know what it is <laughs> listen <laughs> yes that's so true um I had no well, of course nobody had no idea that we were going to be here but yeah so I when I moved back so I'll rewind. So I lived in London for seven years and I studied design and I worked as an illustrator. And then I moved back to the States in 2017. And um, I I kind of tried to just control the narrative of how I was going to get to the next step too much. And it, it, uh, it left me at like a, almost like a paralyzed stage. It's like really, a really just like, you know, it's a strive and I was making progress, but it was like an ugly strive. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm hurting. So um, when I went to Thailand and I taught that class and just a lot of other things that I learned while I was there, it really focused in on surrender. And um, I don't know, that, that word just really, really stuck with me. And it, and it was like, I, you know, through meditating, through painting, I got the the word that in order to get to the next level, I'm really just going to have to let go of everything that I think is supposed to happen or the way that I think that it's supposed to happen. Um, like, it's like, you no longer control this narrative. Like God controls this narrative. Just like, let it go. Have your hands open and see how everything's just, just kind of unfolds. 
Um, so once I left Thailand, and Thailand was like my new year because it was on my birthday. Um, my last four hours on the plane, I just kind of listened. I had my headphones on and I just like, it was like the longest meditation I ever had in my life. Just kind of listened. And I wrote in my journal, like the things that were, that were coming up on what I should do. Um, and when I got back, I was like, okay, I, I have to surrender. So things did come up, you know, where I had the opportunity to try to control it. Um, especially like if I got a certain commission and just trying to control how it goes, um, just let go. And the first big commission that I applied for, it was a big grant, which was in January of this year, uh, was a commission for um, the neighborhood that I grew up in. And I just thought it was just perfect for me. And I, I put so much um, work and heart and soul in, into it. And then I didn't get it. And so it was just like, surrender, <laughs> like surrender, let it go, surrender. And of course, COVID happened. There was another, like you said, there was another um, symbolism of just surrender. And through that, I just had time to think clearly. I gained just a whole more clarity than I've had probably in the past three years. Um, and then just last month, um, I had the opportunity to participate with the Council of Fashion Designers of America with through a, a company called Harlem Fashion Road to show for Market Week, which is like the, the biggest, I, I would say the furthest that my brand has gone since I started my brand. So yeah, that word surrender is like, it might be the word for next year too. And that's something that's a bit difficult with you, particularly when it comes to your art. Like you talked about live streaming and not wanting to do that or not wanting to paint in front of people because you didn't want to make mistakes in front of people. You wanted to perfect it in, in privacy and then show them mm -hmm. the things you were proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. A few years ago I started when Periscope first started, I started doing live paintings on Periscope just to, just to get over the fear of painting in front of people. And so through that, Periscope kind of died out as so I started a YouTube, YouTube channel and that gained me more confidence and just like, this is what it is. If it comes out, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say ugly, but if something comes out on the paper that I'm not necessarily crazy about, so what? You know, it is what it is. This is the painting. And then what I realized is that the paintings that I didn't like or the paintings that I was tempted to toss to the side, like other people loved. So, you know, you can't, I think as an artist or as a person, you can't always be in your head and, you know, overthinking what looks good or what is coming out. Um, okay. Because, you know, this person over here might have a completely different perspective and why, where you see a, you know, a, a dark cloud, they might see a beautiful rose. So yeah, that um, illustrating online lies and then eventually illustrating on YouTube just helped me a lot to just like let go. Is it that you worked in New York for a while after you graduated? Yes. Yeah. So I worked um, 
I worked in New York for two years after I graduated. So I worked in visual merchandising, and then I worked um, for a denim brand amongst a lot of other freelance things. You know, New York is so, 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 so. And so you weren't really satisfied with your working life there. And from the, a trip you had taken to London, you it, it had kind of wet your appetite. So you were like, I'm going to go there and continue with my fashion uh, studies. So you started surrounding your space with pictures from that trip. Yes. As you like worked up the courage to mm-hmm. actually like apply. Right. Right. Is, is that something somebody had taught you or I'm just wondering like where that where that idea came from to surround um, yourself with where you want to be as as you work towards getting there? You know what? I I'm actually I don't know where that idea pinpointed. I I know that um prior to moving to New York I did make a vision board. Um and I think it was just honestly the trendiness of vision board. Everybody was having like vision board parties at that time. Um, and I, I started seeing that the things that I put on my vision board prior to, they were coming to fruition. I'm like, wait, you know, I wanted to take this illustration class. Here it is. I wanted to, you know, be a fashion week. Here it is, whatever. So I started to, yeah. So you're right. When I was in New York, I um I was just just so occupied with just making a living and surviving that I lost track of where what I you know what I moved there for which was design. So I started working on the business end, which I'm grateful for now because I I can you know go back to those um, things that I learned to run a business. But I was I just became like this number crunching. Um, you know, sitting at a desk person. And so my creativity just kind of dwindled down and dwindled down and dwindled down. And almost to the point where, like, I didn't have any canvases, paints, anything in my reach. So I um, I started to, like I said, recall going to London and just like the feeling that I felt. And I looked at those pictures and looked at how excited and, you know, how overstimulated I was just to see like all of these new textures and just hear new accents and trying new food and all that. And so I started to surround myself with images of that. And then I started to, um, I started to, and this is how everything just like connects. I feel like once you put that energy out there, of this is what you want. I took a, uh, illustration class at the Fashion Institute of Technology, which was a school that I had previously been rejected from. So I had I had applied there um, prior to moving to New York, um, but I took a, like a short class, like after work, and I met this guy who was studying or was about to study at Central Saint Martin's in London, which is one of the biggest art schools, and. He showed me his portfolio and his portfolio was like full of these bones and I couldn't understand how this portfolio full of bones, they were like broken up bones and drawings of bones and just, you know, it looked like an art, like a coffee table art book. And he told me, he was like, you know, the British way of designing 
is through cultural research, um, cultural references, you know, social injustice issues, anything that's outside of fashion, and then you fuse that and you bring it into fashion. So when you're presenting a portfolio, you don't present final designs, you present the journey of researching. And that just made like the hair on my arm stand up because I'm like, this is who I am. Like I am such an artist at heart. And I was just trying to figure out a way prior to then how to merge this art with my love for fashion. So um, after he showed me that, you know, the ball just started rolling. I started researching schools. And yeah, so that's how I ended up moving from my office job, office fashion job in New York to London and started really digging into design. You spent what, like seven years there? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I went to this school. Initially, I went to this school, which was called American Intercontinental University. Um, And then I earned a degree from there, but I still didn't feel like I knew enough. So I came back to the States um, and applied for another visa. And then I went back and I studied at London College of Fashion. And that is, that's where hematology took shape. Yes. Where you started creating garments and scarves around hereditary elliptocytosis. Yes. Yeah. So um, hematology came about actually my third year of studying there. So I took a, I'd taken a trip to Paris, um, just probably like a week shy of my 30th birthday. And my doctor, like when I was little, he told me, he's like, you'll have a gallbladder attack before you get 21. Your spleen will probably be removed before you get 30. And then you'll have an aplastic crisis when you're seven. So I had this aplastic crisis, which is where your red blood cells stopped developing when I was seven. And then um, I turned 21, I was fine. And then I'm 29, I'm in Paris, and I'm like literally slumped over walking because it just feels like there's like a golf ball trying to escape out of my body. So that's way I can't explain it. It just hurts so bad. Um, and I had, I had almost forgotten that he told me about golf, golf stones because he just told me that you have golf stones, but he didn't tell me what it's going to feel like. And, you know, like that was so long ago when I was a child. And I'm like taking, you know, we think ginger ale cures everything. I'm like gulping down ginger ale, crackers, like taking um, aspirin. And I'm still just like getting so, so, so sick. So when I got back to London, a friend of mine um, who was in town from New York, she was like, your eyes are really yellow. And then the next day I looked in the mirror and my eyes were green. So I was that scared me. So I went to the hospital in London. And um, again, (laughs) this is just how, you know, you can get mixed diagnosed if you just don't stay on top of your own disorder. They were like, oh, you have hepatitis A. (laughs) I'm like, what? Hepatitis? I thought I got a hepatitis shot. So I'm trying to call my mom and see, you know, um, pull up my records. And so we, my mom, you know, again, she was an advocate and she's like, no, ask them for ultrasound and x-ray and da, da, da. So after ultrasound, they, they determined that, okay, you have a gallstone, you have gallstones and you have a gallstone stuck in your bowel duct. That's why you're having so much, so many complications. 
and we're going to have to do surgery to remove it. So um, I stayed in the hospital for about a week, and they were just so amazed at, wow, you know, we have a patient who has this irregular blood cells because it's, it's one in every 3,000 to 5,000 people have this disorder. So they were bringing students in and they were, you know, we're all getting in the lab, just gathered around your blood smears. So I'm like, well, let me see my blood smears. And um, I look at my blood smears and I'm like, oh, my God, this looks like such a cool print. You know, this would make such a cool print for a dress or something. So, again, Chris, can you get it together? <laughs> you are in the hospital. <laughs> um, you right. Are in the hospital. Right. You're like, wow, that's art. Girl. Right. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yep. So it kind of brought me back to my childhood because, you know, art was what kept me calm when I was little. So I'm in there. The guy was dating at the time. I'm like, bring me my watercolors and my watercolor paper. And I'm about to, you know, just sketch it out. So I was just creating like these prints and not really knowing that I would turn it into a full collection. Um, but when I left, I had like this pile of watercolor prints of my blood smears. And that's when I started to experiment and put it on fabrics and, you know, the the collection was born. That is so amazing. <laughs> so, so hereditary elliptocytosis is misshapen blood cells. Yes. So it is basically uh, blood cells that they are really like smushed down, like blood cells are supposed to look like a donut. So the hole that are the hole that's in the middle of blood cells allows oxygen and nutrients to pass through. But since mine are like smushed down, it's like a like you step on a donut um, that's sitting up, those nutrients and that oxygen has a hard time passing through. So, yeah. So your garments and scarves, your scarves are like super oversized. So they're extremely versatile Mm -hmm. Um, and they're made of silk and cotton because you wanted it to feel like a second skin, it seems like. Yes, yes. Um, Well, one one thing that one problem I would say that I had when I was living in London is that I I was studying design. So design is like very gritty. Um, you like, you know, walking upstairs, picking up fabrics and, you know, getting, just needing to move a lot. Right. And then I was also working as an illustrator. And a lot of times I would do live illustrations. So I would need to go from like the grit of school straight to performance, or I would need to go to the grit of school onto a train to go to Manchester or Paris or somewhere. Um, and I started, I'm like, I don't have clothes that can fit for both occasions. So I needed something that was like comfortable enough for me to move and, you know, be versatile and just be comfortable doing the commute on a, you know, a packed two rush hour train to still looking glamorous and beautiful if I need to go after work and do some live illustrations. Um, so, yeah, I started to come up with all of these fabrics that just feel like skin, like just are very soft, comfortable, just lay on your body really nice. But it's still like it looks like a luxurious garment. So that's that's how I that's how I chose the fabrics 
for the scarves and all of the, especially the jumpsuit. You have a quote uh, from Rainer Maria Rilke that says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. What does that quote mean to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, it really brings me back to like, you really can get over and through anything. Um, when I think about, I think when I think about like being in the hospital and I would say like throughout my life, um, you know, when you're in that moment or when I was in that moment, I'll say, for example, having had this emergency surgery um, while I'm away from family in another country, it just seems like it's like the biggest problem on earth. It just, you know, it just seems like it's like, well, how am I going to get past this? But I still managed to pull something beautiful out of it. And I still managed to um, finish my degree. You know, it just, it was just a temporary inconvenience. So I I just feel like as long as you just keep going, I I think about that quote often because I remind myself, okay, this is not the end. You know, it's not the end. I'm still here. I'm still breathing. It's going to, tomorrow is a new day. Like, let's start over. And the feelings of yesterday or the feelings of that downtime will eventually, they eventually pass away. Like, I just can't even imagine the challenges. First of all, even if you were to have a quote unquote healthy body, like you didn't have this condition as a concern trying to make it in the fashion world as a black woman. Yes. As a Southern black woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it just must be incredible. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, it has definitely been a, a journey trying to, to make it in the fashion industry. I, I feel like it's one of the, the roughest <laughs> um, unfiltered, uncut, industries that there is um i think the thing that that's keeping me going is that i know that this is what i was called to do and then also i feel like i can really tell stories that can change um change people's lives change communities through the stories that i tell for example bringing awareness to these blood disorders i've got so many emails with people saying like you know, oh my God, you know, I feel, I feel fatigue and I know that I'm anemic, but now I'm going to go and get research a little bit more and get my blood checked or even couples that are like, you know, now that we saw your collection, we're going to get our blood counts checked before we have children. You know, we might have some kind of um, blood disorder that might, you know, affect our children. Um, But as far as like being a black woman in the industry, it is difficult. Um, I've seen a, a lot of black women, especially models, I would say models mainly that, you know, I've had to try to advocate for, um, you know, <laughs> everything from, you know, doing their hair, I'm just going to say jacking up the hair to, I remember when I was in um, Paris, this model had an afro, and they said they said something like, um, 
her hair is like arm armpit hair or something, you know, I'm like, oh my God, y'all can't say that, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, you notice like s- small, but very significant things that happen in the fashion industry. Um, I am very like happy now to be a part of a movement that I feel like will be the the brink of black designers getting a getting an equal playing field within the fashion industry um through the opportunity that I'm presented with for showing uh for market week um i we've always had this situation where it's like you know you can grind your way to the top, but you still might not get that opportunity that a white designer might get, or you still might might not get the connection or the knowledge or, you know, the access to new technology, even with me going to like one of the best fashion schools that a white designer might get. So now we have companies, um, especially during this racial um, awakening during this, during this year, we have more brands or more companies that are starting to advocate for black designers and just black people that work in the fashion industry. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, I should say. You talk, uh, talk just a little bit about that. You said that a lot of these companies are taking the words from our mouths and they're putting them on garments like go girl boy bye bye felicia and how much of a profit they're making off of our culture without investing in our communities whatsoever so you you spoke a little bit about the black dollar mattering right about us needing to support black creators versus these companies who are just culture vultures. Like you said, they will ask you like, what's what's the latest lingo or what's the hottest song out right now? It would burn me up. <laughs> just, if you could see smoke coming from my ears sitting at the desk and you would, <laughs> you would. yeah. So um, yeah, the last company that I worked for in New York um, was basically a company that produced T-shirts and I would just say like shorts and some at the time those um, you call them terry cloth joggers were big and there were all of our things you know the things that we just the things that we just say you know the things that <laughs> come up our probably you know sayings that were some some of them passed down from our um, older ancestors, our older uh, grandparents, you know, that we've like tweaked or, you know, we have our own lingo, our own slang, and they would literally take it. Sometimes they would go like to Harlem and do what they call research and see what was, you know, on 125th, they had all these stalls, they had all these like t-shirts with sayings. It would come, take it, slap it on the shirt, and it literally would not take a full week to get it. to the manufacturer and they would be produced so cheap like um the most synthetic of synthetic fabrics that they would use um to produce these things which 
you know, if you're producing things that quick on all of these synthetic fabrics, they're full of chemicals. So, um, you know, the markup for these shirts would be maybe from like a dollar to make it to like a $19.99 retail. And then they will put it right back in Harlem or right back in, in Brooklyn or um, right back in any other urban neighborhoods around the United States. And they would sell like thousands and thousands of garments from, you know, from us. Like we would, we would purchase it and, you know, and then they would be able to just continue that cycle without putting a dollar back into the community centers, um, back into any kind of literacy programs. You know, I even heard like one lady what was working with me it's just like I wouldn't step foot in Harlem like I you know y'all do the research I'm like wow you know you wouldn't go to these neighborhoods you're scared to go to these neighborhoods but you are literally taking this culture from the people who um keep the neighborhood afloat and making a profit so I, I I made that post because I just wanted people to be intentional about where they spend their money these sayings you know they're cute and they're fun and you know we want to rock a shirt with it on but you know look at the label and see who's making it see where it's made look at the fabric content um ask the owners of the stores that you're going in where is where is this being manufactured who's the owner of this company you know if they can't give you an answer then that's probably a sign that you don't need to shop there so yeah that was a big eye-opener for me where do you think this disconnect comes from? Because there are Black luxury creators. There are Black garment creators. So why do you think that, you know, the girls are going crazy over Marc Jacobs or Kay Spade or right. any any of the, these other popular producers? Um, you know, I refer back to the Willie Lynch letter, um, you know, how, how he set the blueprint of how for generations, how we can keep black people under control. And um, I, I, I honestly think that, you know, we as a culture have not come to a full realization that, um, you know, we don't have to, I think, I think that those things, those name brands, I would say helps us to, helps us to, um, feel like we're on a higher playing field or, you know, we're equal to, to another race. But really I feel like um, you're more empowered if you do spend with a, a black luxury designer or, or a black luxury brand, or even if it's not a, a black brand, just a, a brand who actually shows that they care about your well-being as a culture, um, and you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily know where the disconnect comes from, but I just think that we we have to um, educate ourselves a lot more, and and that's where I think you know my job comes in as far as the fashion industry. There's a lot of a lot of industries where we can do a lot better with spending our dollar. Um, but since I have like inside knowledge of the fashion industry, I just try to share those stories as much as I can. Cause we, you know, sometimes we just don't 
we're just blind consumers. You know, we see something that's that's hot and we want to um, we want to rock it. <laughs> we want to be, you know, seen or seen in a certain way. And so we spend our money on it. But also a lot of times we're the one that makes the brand hot in the first place. Right. Yeah. Even though yeah. the creators of the brand often try to distance themselves from us because they think that we bring the value of their brand down. Right. Right. Yes. And we are the ones, we put it in our rap songs, you know? So I think that it's the responsibility of everybody, like, you know, music artists, poets, everybody, like, um, be a lot more intentional, you know, before you slide a Mark Jacobs in your lyrics, just think of research and see what is Mark Jacobs doing for us. <laughs> and, you know, then you make your decision off of that. Um, you know, I think that now, especially, we can't turn a blind eye to our responsibility as as individual people. Um, because once you once you wear a brand or once you speak about a brand in your song or whatever, you're really endorsing that <laughs> that brand. Whether we wanna believe it or not, we are all walking billboards. So you know, just like we we made Michael Kors hot, <laughs> we made Tommy hot, we can make other Black brands just as hot. You seem like very intentional and thoughtful about art. It's like breathing for you is what it seems like. Have you ever had like that kind of struggle with expression or the direction like you talked a little bit about like letting go, like surrendering to the process. Have you had to do that specifically in your art as well? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I would say once I, once I, and I, I think that that process was kind of like when I was in New York, um, like I said, when I met that guy who had these bones, um, and I initially tried to like create this portfolio that was gonna get me into these schools, I did have this kind of tug of war, like how do I implement these things that I know and I love into fashion? You know, it was like I was, um, and I think environment plays a lot. I was, since I wasn't working in the creative industry, I just didn't really know how to express myself um, in ways that I really wanted to, if that makes sense. So just like the, the quote, no feeling is final, I just had to like just push through and keep going. And eventually, I, my, my portfolio that got me into London College of Fashion was a um, portfolio about Native American, Native American culture. And so I did some research about um, Native American history in the South, in particular in, in Memphis. And that was the, that was like the portfolio that I, I like developed a, a small collection based off of those stories and based, based off of that history. And that, and then that's when I, I think that's when I realized, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that's when I realized even before hematology that I wanted to tell like these stories through through clothing. 
before it was just like, you know, paintings of flowers and paintings of, you know, faces and just like the, the stuff that you would, normal people would paint when they're just starting out, just, just starting to like explore um, a higher level of art. I'm curious too about, about your art. So looking at, you talk about the process that you go through and how, you know, to get to whatever you're getting to, you have to sketch so much, you have to paint so much. And so sometimes you come up with some things that you sell, um, some of the art that you've created on the way to creating your ultimate art or what have you. Mm -hmm. None of those are particularly black. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and I'm curious about that because they don't even look like you. Like you're, you know, slim Mm -hmm. and like you wear braids or you wear your hair out. And none of those women, I don't see a aunt, I don't see a grandma, you know what I mean? I don't see a cousin, a sister. Mm-hmm. What, why? <laughs> like, if I may ask. Yes. So, um, so I started, when I started doing watercolor paintings, I started painting images on the runway. So that's how, like, I got my, like, professional start in fashion illustration. I would paint, um, draw for designers as they were, as women were coming down the catwalk. And to be honest, a lot of those women didn't look like me. Um, and it's funny that you, <laughs> that you pointed that out, um, because a lot of them were, like, slim. And I won't even say white. They just weren't black. So um, a, a lot of my earlier work, they were just, like, catwalk images. And then that started started to evolve into like portraiture. And I like leaving negative space on the paper. Um, if you look like around my illustrations, there's no color filled in. And what I started to do is I started to play with the features. So some of the features do look like, especially in my later works, they look like black women but they are they might not have a black face they might not have brown skin they it's just like on a negative sheet of paper um or the paint or the it might have like a splash of a color that doesn't look like skin um and as i started to fuse in this idea of traveling women and the global woman with my art i realized that i didn't really want the the paintings to have a specific race. I wanted that race to be up to the interpretation of the viewer. Um, when I did a painting for, well, when I did illustrations for the Peninsula of Tokyo, they they said, "Oh, this looks like this looks like this could be a Japanese woman." And I showed it to somebody else, and I said, "This looks like my cousin. It was a black woman." <laughs> and somebody else said oh, this looks like a white girl, you know? So I kind of like people to have that conversation based on, you know, what they interpret it to be. Um, some of them like to know, and I I studied, I did portrait paintings for a, a while. And I did do a series um, called Beauty Portraits, which, which were all black women. If you go back, back on maybe YouTube, you can see some, um, some paintings I've taken it off of my website, but um, they did have brown skin and they did have like full features like black women, 
But if you took that color away, if you took those, um, like, I guess, like, calm, calm the features down, you wouldn't really know what race they were. Or if you took the color away and just kept the features, you really wouldn't know what race they were. So I, I always like for people to have that dialogue of, of who is this woman. But even your garments for your line, none of the models that I've seen were black. Um, yeah, so so for my for my final collection, um, I did choose an Asian model, Asian um, Asian British model, and that was not for no specific reason other than she just looked good in the garments. But I have had other black women to model my clothes, especially the scarves. There have been a, a few black women who have modeled the garments. So uh, my models range from Asian women, the runway images, I mean, the runway um, show that I had through the school, they were mostly white women. And then I've had some black women. So I'm very intentional about having a lot of cultures represented in my brand. Even with the videos that you've done, so you created, again, you are marrying a lot of your interests. So mm -hmm. you created this series where you are filming yourself, illustrating, and you're having women talk about their solo travel experiences. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, you're staying true to your diversity. So you invited some different kinds of women from different places who were traveling all over the globe right. to share their stories. And it's just, it's just really cool the ways that you are finding to take pieces of things that you're interested in and integrate them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so travel is, you know, has always been a big part of who I am. Um, and I just wanted to, to hear other people. I mean, I have, I'm sure most people that travel, um, especially if you travel solo, you have some pretty crazy travel stories. So I just grab these women, like I said, women of all different races to tell me about their travel stories. And I wanted to capture that in an illustrated form, which one of the travel stories um, is on a garment now. On the, on the scarf and on the kimono. What do you think has helped you to get through the challenges that you've experienced? Um, I think that it's knowing my purpose um, and knowing that this is, I, I feel like this is like, you know, this is this one life that I have and that, you know, we all have this one life. And it's like, if I don't, push through it. If I don't push through a challenge, then what else am I going to do? You know, this is like what I was born to do. I was born to uh, tell stories through art and through design. And I really want to leave a legacy for the next generation. I don't have children yet, but even if I, which I, I want to have children, but even just leaving a legacy for my nieces and nephews and for my smaller cousins. Um, I'm really big on leaving something behind that they can build from. So when I think about like a challenge, 
sometimes I think about them or I think about, um, you know, the next generation of children that I might not know, but, you know, there might be some little girl, especially from my community, who wants to pursue um, a career in fashion or a career in art. And she'll have my story to use as, as like a light blueprint. So that, that really that really keeps me going. Would you mind sharing your self-care practices? Yes. So um, I get up pretty early um, and I journal pretty much every day. And I always go for a walk in the morning. So when it's when it's cold, I'll go to the gym in the morning or when it's warm, which I love loving. I've been loving this summer. Just just like get out and go for a walk. Um, and that keeps me grounded every day. If I, if I miss out on my morning routine with just like some kind of reading or journaling or um, just walking and listening to some kind of music, then my day feels feels unstable. It feels like, you know, it's, it's shakable. Yeah, the walking is, is very grounding. Sometimes even when I walk, I, I might, um, I like to walk by myself. And sometimes I'll just, you know, put my music on and just like walk until I, without a, a specific like fitness goal or, you know, like I'm trying to walk this many miles. I just need to like just walk and gather my thoughts and then the rest of my day can, can follow suit. Whenever you are traveling, is there any particular way that you enjoy exploring? Yes, I am a wanderer. Um, I, I use the, the hashtag wanderer on a lot of my posts. I like to just like take a city by storm without a specific, um, without a specific like idea of what I want to see. Sometimes when I do plan a trip, I might not even like research a lot of things. I just like to go and see what there is to do. But I, I'm, a, I'm a mixture of um, adventure and like chill. So I love a place where I can relax. I love um, I, I love cities that have a body of water, even if it's just a lake. I just love like water. So when I travel, I'll usually like my, my typical day is like getting up, like walking, finding a nice cafe or something, um, maybe trying to find a museum or just walking the city and skimming up on a museum or a place that has art. Um, and then the adventurous side is I love to swim. So if I'm in a place that has like an ocean or somewhere where I can do some kind of water sports, I usually try to tap into some type of water sports. Is there anything in particular? Um, I think you said that when you're traveling, you just have to be careful about what you eat because you notice that some foods are more draining to your body than others. But is there anything in particular you have to do to take care of yourself? Yes. Um, since I had the gallbladder attack, before I had the gallbladder attack, I was very, very, um, I would just say not like naive and just being a typical 20 something year old, I guess, and eating whatever I wanted to eat and not really paying attention to my body. But now when I travel, 
I, I would say on specifically on the airplane, I wear my compression socks. <laughs> um, I always like get up and I stretch all throughout the flight and that's just to keep the blood circulating, the blood flowing. Um, I try to limit the amount of alcohol intake while I'm flying. Um, just because when you, of course, like when you're sitting, you know, a lot of people might get like blood clots and then I have this blood disorder. So it's even harder for my blood to, to, you know, recirculate itself. And then if I'm adding alcohol on top of it, it's just like, you know, my blood is just like, what are you doing? You know, you're not helping us. So I try to limit alcohol when I'm, um, during the commute and then, other than that, I just listen to my body a lot more. Um, without a gallbladder, you're not supposed to eat a lot of spicy foods. So I try to stay away from too many spicy foods and just really paying attention to how I feel once I put a bite of food in my mouth. The, the biggest thing about keeping this blood disorder um, at with minimal complications is nutrition. So... Um, things like beet juice is like great for blood. So I always like take many shots of beet juice on the plane with me or if I'm taking a road trip or just like little mini um, bottles of like ginger shots and, you know, just things that if I'm feeling a little achy or something, I can just take this holistic for me, holistic, um, holistic foods are what makes me feel my best. And how do you like to celebrate? Um, I usually celebrate. <laughs> a lot of times I celebrate by taking a trip, but um, I would say celebrating my wins are usually with my family. My family and I have a group of really close girlfriends that we went to. We went to middle school. We were majorettes together in middle school, and uh, you know we went to high school together, and we've just been like tightest thieves ever since. So usually celebrating includes them um, and then my family. And I know we talked about that real quote before, but do you have a song lyric or a poem that speaks to you these days? Um, I've been, I've been really looking at the serenity prayer. Um, Grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change and the courage to change the things that I can in the, wisdom to know the difference. And Chris, I always like to invite guests to share. How can listeners support your work? Yes. So um, you can support my work by following me along my journey um, on Instagram. I also send out a newsletter weekly and sometimes bi-weekly, and you can get access to that by visiting my website, by Chris Keys. Dot com And also on the website, I have merchandise uh, for the traveling woman, or even if you don't travel, just comfortable, beautiful garments that you can purchase. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you sharing your story and sharing your perspective. Um, it's been really, really dope connecting with you. Thank you. Likewise. My pleasure. Well, I will link all of those places in the show notes so listeners can connect with you as well and we will see you on the internet streets yes all right bye thank you so much my pleasure Ooh.
Ah, um, barum, um, 